0: Hello and welcome back to Mind Over Chatter, the Cambridge University podcast. I'm Annie. I'm Nick. And I'm Naomi. And once again, we're inviting you to join us in our conversations with clever, curious people here in Cambridge.
1: In this third series, we're talking about health.
0: And in this episode, we're focusing on dementia. We're going to cover everything from new diagnosis techniques, current and potential future treatments, and tau tangles, which as you'll soon find out, aren't in fact a new kind of Greek noodle.
1: So who are we talking to in this episode?
2: A clinical neuropsychologist. Hi, I'm Barbara Sahakian. I'm Professor of Clinical Neuropsychology. I'm based in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. A neurologist.
3: Hi, so I'm James. James Rowe, I'm a neurologist. I'm Professor of Cognitive Neurology, which means dementia, here at Cambridge University, and also Nationally Associate Director for the Dementia's Platform UK. And
4: a sociologist.
3: So I'm Richard Milne.
5: I'm a sociologist, and I work at Welcome, Connecting Science, which is um, based at the Sanger Institute and I also lead work on ethics law and society within Cambridge Public Health.
0: As usual we begin by asking our guests to tell us about their research.
5: So my, um, my research interests are primarily in questions related to the social and ethical implications of new medical technologies of innovation.
3: Yes mine's about getting new treatments for people with dementia and related conditions based on understanding what's special about the human brain and the way it has diseases and how can we use that knowledge to, to get new treatments.
2: My interest is in cognition and also in in the brain, and I'm very interested in, first of all, uh, assessing cognition in an objective way, uh, using uh, modern tools such as computerized testing, and also uh, looking at uh, new treatments for dementia. And so I I look at uh, drugs, but also I investigate how we can improve uh, cognition using games such as uh, sort of brain training apps.
0: The whole episode today is going to be about dementia. So we wanna start by defining what that ev- even is. Um, so James, can you start by telling us what is dementia and what causes it?
3: Yeah, so dementia refers to really a family of different disorders, but they're all characterized by a loss of uh, those mental brain functions to do with thinking and memory or language. And dementias happen when we lose more than one of those capacities and to an extent where it gets in the way of a normal everyday life. So they're typically progressive conditions um, coming on in, in mid or later life. But it, it really, it's, it's quite a broad umbrella term for many different disorders. And uh, One of the excitements of working in dementia is how you know, we're all different in our good health and therefore we're also all different into how dementia affects us individually. And that's something that's a real challenge but excitement for, for researchers.
0: So you sort of answered some of what I was going to ask next, but first I wanted to check with Barbara. Do you have anything that you would want to add to James's definition?
2: Well, I I think that was uh, great. But what I would say is, dementia is a neurodegenerative disease with a decline in cognition and functionality, as he mentioned. And Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, affecting about fifty to seventy-five percent of those with dementia, and it's characterized by severe changes in memory and other forms of cognition early on in the disease process. And these changes will eventually affect activities of daily living.
0: So two questions, just to follow up on that, you use the word um, cognitive function or cognition there, and also neurodegenerative. Can you tell us what those mean, please?
2: Um, Well, neurodegenerative refers to the changes in the brain that you get, the neuropathological changes. And these include neurofibrillary tangles, which are aggregates of tau protein, and amyloid plaques, and the amyloid plaques are deposits of amyloid beta protein. So that's really what happens when we have these changes in Alzheimer's disease in the brain. And uh, it's progressive, and that's why we uh, term it a sort of neurodegenerative disease.
3: Uh, just to add to that, in sort of more everyday language, you might think of it as wear and tear or dying back of the brain cells. Um, not all the brain, often it's, you know, particular bits of the brain are affected more than others, but it's it's over and above normal ageing. So the changes we get with normal ageing, they're different, uh, and the dementia is different from, from normal ageing, but it's essentially dying dying back of nerve cells. They die back because of a whole series of reasons. Often it's to, related to a buildup of junk proteins that change their shape and get sticky and claggy within the brain cells, and that's those amyloid plaques and tau tangles that the barber referred to. Um, but there's other other things that uh, are part of the pathology. Um, sometimes very specific to each disease individually, and sometimes there's things that all these dementias have in common under the microscope.
4: Um, okay, so I'm wondering if um, Richard, it would be useful to understand a little bit about kind of the scale of the disorders. So, who does dementia impact?
5: Well, I mean, I think um, I think like James said, I think it, it's it's so it, dementias are more common from mid to later life. I think the um, the estimate in the UK is that by 2040, I think there'll be, the estimate is that there'll be 1.2 million people in the UK with dementia as the population ages. Um, I think what's what's interesting is that if you'd predicted that 10, 15 years ago, that number would have been higher. Um, and so there has been a kind of drop in, in the number of people developing dementia, the percentage of people developing dementia. Richard, just
3: to clarify that, so age for age, our brains are in better condition than 30 years ago. But the population is changing so much, there are many more people at 85 and 95, 105. So the total number of people with dementia is increasing quite rapidly, even though our like-for-like risk as perhaps a 70-year-old today is better than 30 years ago. Um, The the overall numbers are increasing rapidly. We should remember that one in three of us are going to get dementia as things stand. And that's, you know, you could, looking on the screen now, I could look to the left or look to the right, and we could draw lots. You know, one in three its an extraordinarily high statistic, and many of the families listening will know that from families, grandparents, neighbours, and so on. So uh, that, that translates into this figure of 1.2 million at any one time in a few years' time. But across our lifetime, one in three. And I think that, that really brings it home, just how big this problem is and the challenges.
2: Yeah, just to add to that, I mean, uh, one in six people over the age of 80 have dementia in the UK, and actually the World Health Organization estimated that around 55 million people worldwide have dementia, and that's expected to rise to 78 million in 2030.
4: And just going back to a point that you made there, James, are there some ways in which um, everybody is impacted by dementia, even if they don't suffer from the syndrome oh,
2: person? Exactly.
3: So it's not just the person with dementia. There's a huge impact on their family, uh, both in the distress it can cause. Often uh, other husbands, wives or children need to step out of the work market in order to help care for people, uh, particularly globally. That's the case. The burden of looking after someone with dementia falls within families in many parts of the world. But also the cost in in the UK alone. Five years ago, the cost of the UK was 25 to £30 billion pounds a year, year on year. Uh, and it's been the number one cause of death year on year, before, during and after the COVID pandemic. And that's something we should all bear in mind. Uh, if you look internationally, it's it's a, the cost of dementia is in trillions. Um, so and we all feel that that's a burden that we all pay through our taxes and through through lost productivity. Um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's, it goes far beyond just those people who have the dementia themselves. So it's a shared problem.
0: Richard, do you do you have anything to add to, to that?
5: No, I mean, I think it is. The, I think it's important to to recognise that it's a problem for for individuals, for families, and for societies as a whole, as to how we yeah, how we engage with with dementia in the future and how we work to kind of reduce the the prevalence of
2: dementia.
0: Okay, now that we've laid sort of the foundation of what dementia is and and how it impacts all of us, um, I wonder if uh, James, you could tell us a little bit about about an overview of a typical patient experience for someone who is in the process of getting diagnosed or about to be diagnosed. So what would their symptoms be and, and how does that diagnosis typically happen?
3: Yeah, and I think well, I think the, the sort of view of this has changed a lot in the last 10 years. So I might perhaps talk talk through what I might call a lifespan of the dementia. And that is the, the processes, well, we haven't perhaps started at the beginning. We're born with a genetic variability that increases or decreases our predisposition. So it's not just by single genes that are rather rare, but you know the combination of all our genes, what's so called polygenic risk, puts us at a higher or lower lifetime risk of dementia. Then without our knowing it, as we come through our 20s and 30s, those processes that we'll later see under the microscope, such as these tangles and amyloid plaques, they're beginning to be present from early adult life. Um, and. Uh, they would be readily seen and could be detected with even modern-day technologies, certain sorts of brain scans, by our 40s and 50s. But with no symptoms, our brains are very resilient to these early processes. But it's underway; the 20s, 30s, 40s, well underway. Then, more typically, by perhaps by in one's 60s, one might start to get early symptoms. Initially, not knowing their significance, um, either thinking it's just to do with changing in the stages of life, of work pressures, or Uh, you know, retirement issues, mild forgetfulness, perhaps thinking it's common or normal at at that age, and not knowing when is it the normal experience of going up the stairs and forgetting why you've gone there or popping into a shop and forgetting why you're there. That's a normal experience and not dementia. But when is that different from losing the car in the car park or forgetting things regularly? There's a very soft start to these early mild symptoms and that may go on for some years and people then They have more persistent, uh, but typically memory problems that would often go by the name of mild cognitive impairment, MCI. Although it's mild, it can be jolly annoying, um, and it is part of the illness. Uh, It can be intrusive in everyday life, but but normal life is pretty much business as usual, maybe even for five or five, six, seven years. But then after that time, either the memory deficits are just so severe, they, they make it difficult to live a normal life, or perhaps by then other problems start arising: difficulty in articulating one's speech, getting jumbled up in where things are, not seeing the world correctly, um, um, and uh, perhaps some some problems with movement or balance can creep in. And so it becomes a more complex illness as well as a more severe illness. And that, at that point, the impact on everyday life marks it out under this dementia banner, though we know that the D word. Um, but again, for many people, would live with that dementia. At home with with degree of support from friends and family for for many years, five six seven years perhaps on average and for some although by no means all the latter part of the illness the last small number of years might uh, for many want professional help either through residential or nursing homes because of the increasing level of support you need for, for basic activities of daily living. So from first symptoms to the end of the illness with the common dementias like Alzheimer's disease One's typically thinking of a 10 to 15 year um, sort of period. It depends a bit on how old one is when it starts. But it is quite a long illness, changing though, during that time. But it's important to recognise that comes on the back of perhaps 20 or 30 years of hidden illness in the brain, in the body, which we had no awareness of. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity to, you know, to try and get in and treat and prevent those dementia processes to to prevent symptoms ever showing up and a reminder of how how resilient our brains can be to that growing disease um, that's, that's hidden. So that I see as a sort of a lifespan of dementia.
1: Okay, let's hang on a minute and recap where we've got to so far. So, dementia. Yep,
0: that's it. We learned that dementia is a group of disorders all characterised by the loss of normal brain functions such as thinking, memory, language, and so on. The loss of these brain functions get in the way of normal life, as you'd imagine. Sort of similar to the definition of mental illness, if you remember that episode. Dementia is usually a progressive condition, which means that after it arrives, which it tends to do in mid to later life, it usually gets worse over time and it gets worse at a rate which is faster than what you'd expect from just regular aging alone. Barbara told us that Alzheimer's is the most common type of dementia. Somewhere
4: between 50 to 75% of people with dementia have this type. And as you may already
0: know, Alzheimer's is characterized by memory loss. Barbara says that dementia is neurodegenerative, which means that some of the brain tissues stops working or dies. At this point, we
4: should add that the second most common form of dementia is vascular dementia, which is usually considered not to be degenerative, but can be caused by problems with the brain's blood supply.
0: In the case of Alzheimer's, Barbara told us this is called by aggregates of tau proteins. Tau tangles, she said. And amyloid plaques, basically clumps of extra proteins. Junk proteins, James called them. Both of which gunk up the brain and stop neurons from working properly.
1: Tau tangles. Sounds like a new type of Greek noodle. That, or the latest hairstyle fashion craze, not sure I have enough hair to sport any tout tangles personally.
4: James and Richard told us that the total number of people with dementia is increasing rapidly because the world's population is aging. And dementia
0: affects a lot of people. James said one in three are likely to develop dementia as they
1: age.
4: Barbara added that the WHO, uh,
1: I think you mean the World Health Organization and not the band.
4: Yes, the World Health Organization, estimates that 55 million people around the world have dementia right now and that they expect this to rise to 78 million by 2030.
0: Which is a lot of people. That's more than the population of the UK. But
4: dementia doesn't just affect the people who have it. Their friends and relatives are also impacted,
0: and it costs us all in more ways than one. The financial cost of looking after people with dementia in the UK is somewhere between 25 to 30 billion pounds per year. That's a lot. Just think what we could do with that money. Mind over chatter private hovercraft
4: equipped with nappy changing robot butler, anybody?
0: (laughs) And amazingly and sadly, dementia was both the number one cause of death in the UK before and during the pandemic.
1: So more people died of dementia than Covid. Wow.
4: James told us that there are some genetic factors we're either born with or not, which increase the risk of developing dementia. And that physical signs of dementia like tangled protein clumps in the brain can be visible on scans many years before any symptoms appear
0: also it can be difficult to tell the difference between normal forgetfulness with old age and early symptoms of dementia
1: i can confirm from bitter personal experience that the forgetfulness definitely increases with age now if only i could remember i put that child
4: it isn't until more severe symptoms appear later on such as speech or movement difficulties, then it might become apparent that a person has dementia.
0: And people are able to live with the milder symptoms for many years relatively independently, often with support from friends and family. It's only towards the end of their illness that many people require professional help.
4: It's a long illness and one which changes throughout its course. And the fact that it remains hidden for a long time, before even the mild symptoms appear, points towards just how resilient our brains actually are It's pretty remarkable that they continue to function so well for such a long time, despite all of the junk proteins they're accumulating, even if they do eventually begin to stop working properly. So Barbara, just to pick up on something um, James said there, it feels like the earlier that dementia is detected, the better the outcomes could be for the patients. But can you tell us a bit about how that would work? How is dementia usually diagnosed and detected? What are the tools that we've got there for doing that?
2: Yes, yeah, so it, it's very important that it be detected early because we do have some symptomatic treatments. I worked on some of the earliest one, the cholinesterase inhibitors, uh, drugs like donepezil, which are now approved for mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, and um, you know they're very useful for treating the uh, symptoms. So it is important. Normally, as James said, you after you'd realize there were symptoms. Uh, you go to a uh, see a neurologist specialist, perhaps who would um, look at uh, brain scans and and uh, do medical assessments to see if there's uh, it's something like Alzheimer's disease or some uh, other form of a neurological disorder, and also a psychologist or a neuropsychologist would probably do cognitive testing. James mentioned the early memory problems that we see. And we call these, uh, in Alzheimer's disease, these early memory problems are usually termed episodic memory problems, and uh, we look also for, as a neuropsychologist, for a decline in cognition. At the University of Cambridge, we've done a lot of work on this, and we've set up one of the earliest memory clinics to detect Alzheimer's disease. And um, I actually co-invented a set of tests called the Cantab. Uh, battery, the Cambridge Neuropsychological Test Automated Battery, and the paired associate learning test. So it's called, for short, Cantab-Pal. And Cantab-Pal is a computerized test which can be administered via an iPad or over the internet now. And the test requires you to remember where patterns go in boxes. Um, So there's different patterns and you have to place them using a touch screen in boxes and if you are unable to learn where they go initially, you have an opportunity to learn where they go. And episodic memory relies on a neural network, which includes the hippocampus in the brain, and which is one of the first areas to be affected by the changes in the brain that we see in Alzheimer's disease the neuropathology. And the neural network involving the hippocampus has also been shown to be critical for the performance on the Cantab-PAL test. So episodic memory is really important because as you heard from James, we use it every day. It's a kind of memory where we try to remember where you parked your car in a multi-story car park or try to remember where you left your mobile phone in the house. So it's absolutely essential to our functioning from day to day. And um, the Cantab-PAL has actually helped to increase uh, early detection of Alzheimer's disease because it's a very sensitive uh, test to the memory problems in Alzheimer's disease, and so we can detect it early. And um, as I said, it was co-invented by myself and Trevor Robbins, and then the technology was transferred to the company Cambridge Cognition so that it could be accessed worldwide.
0: I'll, I'll jump to, to Richard with a question about um... Are there any controversies about early diagnosis or is there any reason why people wouldn't want to find out early that they have um, a disease like Alzheimer's?
5: Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's a very good question. And it's been a very big question. This this um, how you um, establish the value of, of early detection and early diagnosis has been um, a kind of ongoing issue. I mean, I think the part of the part of the question is if you take the the trajectory that James described, so where if you have somebody who has symptomatic dementia, they will have gone through these kind of various stages of disease. But when you look at it at a kind of group level, I suppose in the other direction forwards, that some people at every stage, so some of the people who have pathology in their brain, will not move on to then develop mild cognitive impairment. Some of those people who have mild cognitive impairment will not go on to develop dementia. And so if you're, the earlier you move in terms of detecting the presence of disease, rather than detecting dementia specifically the more uncertainty comes with that the more you're talking about somebody's somebody's risk of developing dementia in the future and that then creates a um, it, it creates a set of questions that have been around really I mean they started being kind of seriously asked in the early 1990s when the first genetic variants associated with Um, forms of dementia were were identified and particularly the the identification of the APOE gene which is the gene that predisposes you to developing Alzheimer's disease but it's not predictive if you have the gene it's not a kind of it's not a guarantee that you're going to develop Alzheimer's disease in the future and the question then is what's the what's the value in knowing in knowing this Um, and that's been debated in, in back and forth in many ways and so we end up in a situation now where you, know, you can go into a, a personal genetics consumer genetics company and you can order a 23 you can order a, an APOE test uh, kind of freely, well not freely, you pay for it, but you can op- you can order it on the internet without any requirement for, um, for consulting anybody about whether you should, whether you should do that um, But really the debate resolves around like, is this useful information? Does it Is it something that you're going to make a change on the basis of or is it something that your doctor is going to make? A change on the basis of, um, or is it simply something that sits in a box where, for, which for some people might be interesting or useful, and for some people might be worrying or anxiety-inducing? And so, there's been a lot of um, a lot of research effort really over the last kind of you know, 25, 30 years to try and work out what people do with that information, what's the value of that information, and I think this is where dementia are really can. Uh, really I mean it's it's a very interesting but it's also a very problematic case in a sense that because the arguments about early detection can be more difficult to make around dementia than it is around other diseases because you have a lack of clear preventative. Can, can,
3: can I come in there, Richard? I have okay. I have to object to this. I've got to object to this online. I hear this a lot and I think it's I think it's the wrong argument. It centers on the stigma of dementia. If dementia was not stigmatized, we wouldn't have the same type of discussion. Heart disease and stroke are not stigmatised, therefore people have no fear, or this sort of convolutions around checking for diabetes, blood pressure, cholesterol. You do it, you deal with those risks, and you tackle your long-term risks. Actually, a very high proportion of dementia can be prevented even before new magic bullet drugs. 40%, it's estimated, could be prevented by simple, practical measures we could all implement. And, you know, that should be empowering to inform people about their risk, whether it's genetic risk or health factors to be engaged with. And I think we hear all these convoluted arguments about, well, who would want to know? Uh, we hear this because of the fundamental stigma of dementia. And actually, we should all want to know because we can all do something about it um, to, to reduce our personal risk. And so,
5: I mean, I would, I would completely agree. I mean, I think that that. If you look in the, the argument around the kind of discussions around cancer in the late 1970s and the, the stigma associated with cancer, and that has changed. Part of the reason it's changed is because of the clear ability to do to to treat, but also because we've we have had a a mature societal discussion about what it means to have cancer. And it's now much more possible to talk about a cancer diagnosis than it was 40 years ago. And one would hope that as one moves to kind of using these early categories of of disease that we can do a similar thing around dementia. Um, I think, I mean, one of the issues as it stands is, so like you said, we, there's a kind of 40% of, um, of dementia may be kind of preventable or due to preventable risk factors. And they are things that all of us can do. And the question is, do you have to have information about risk if they're things that everybody can do? Or are they simply things that everybody should be recommended to do in the same way that we recommend we recommend lifestyle changes across kind of cardiovascular disease, regardless of whether you have high cholesterol. It's still good to do ha- have a healthy diet and do ex- exercise.
2: Sorry, I was going to I was going to support James very much on this because um, I do think that, while well, you might think that it's good to tell everybody to do these things. If you actually realize that you can reduce your risk of dementia by, say, being physically active, not smoking, avoiding harmful use of alcohol, controlling your weight, eating a healthy diet, maintaining healthy blood pressure and cholesterol and blood sugar levels, people are more likely to do these things. And also, if you detect early, patients have the time to actually ensure that their financial and personal affairs are in good order, so they can actually arrange things. And there are treatments, so there are the cholinesterase inhibitors for symptomatic treatments for cognitive problems, such as the drugs uh, we mentioned, Dinepazil, and they're approved by NICE. And then there's new drugs now, uh, which are not yet uh, fully approved, but are available in the USA, like Biogen's Alderham, and they're using those drugs for um treating the underlying disease process. So as we move on, they'll, it'll be even more important to detect early so that you can actually get these treatments early before there's too much damage in the brain to have the treatments work.
0: Can I just ask a, um, a question just to make sure I understand Like. Uh, We're going to move on to treatment in a moment, but just about early diagnosis to sort of tie that up. We heard, you know, you can get direct-to-consumer genetic tests to find out if you have a gene that predisposes you to a condition like Alzheimer's. Um, And and Barbara mentioned Cantab-PAL, which I believe is a cognitive function test. But is there a way to actually look for the clumps of protein that are in your brain to have, like, is there a physical test to see if that problem is there at an early stage
3: there are. Um, at the moment, their cost and some other disadvantages and their cost invasiveness have meant they're largely only in the research context rather than in uh, sort of NHS brain health clinics, but that's shifting quite rapidly. Uh, recent advances showing how some blood tests, looking at sort of the chemical signatures in the blood, the way these uh, junk proteins spill over into, into the blood, uh, can be extremely sensitive. But I think I want to de-emphasise the technology Uh, because that's moving rapidly and that's merely this or that technology. I think the bigger question is how you use that information, how you contextualise it, how you understand it in terms of one's personal risk and one's personal um, steps you can take to reduce risk. We've we've seen already, perhaps... Wrongly interchangeability around the use of screening versus diagnosis versus risk. These things are not the same. You know, diagnosis is a very you know particular thing around a cause of a, a set of symptoms you have. It's not the same as saying you have a 50% risk in, of dementia in the next 10 years. That's not a diagnosis. That's around risk. Um, looking at di- a sort of quasi-diagnosis before symptoms to say you have in your body the changes that we think of with Alzheimer's disease. You don't know it yet, you have no problems with your memory, but those changes are underway. That's a halfway to a diagnosis, but you're still well at that stage. And it still is really around, I think we are using the language of screening and, in- and preventative interventions. So what we're not looking to do is to take people who are perfectly well, getting on with their lives in their fifties and sixties and say, you have Alzheimer's dementia. That, w- that would be wrong as well as harmful, but we can be saying, you have a risk that you can do something about to reduce. And perhaps even in a very small number of years, there are other treatments we can give to try and eliminate that risk. So there's things that your doctors can do with some of these uh, disease-modifying treatments that are coming, but we needn't wait. There's things you can already do yourselves. Um, it takes effort, it takes effort to take to take exercise, to sleep better, drink less, smoke less. But that effort is worth it if we can, you know, give people advice that this is not just the advice doctors give to everybody. This is really particular for you because you now have an increased risk that that you want to do something about.
5: Yeah, if I could just if I could just follow up on that, I think um, I think there are a couple of things. I think one is the that, that within a, a conversation about dementia, I think it's really important to reflect the fact that there has been within the research field, I think, a, a significant shift over the last couple of decades, whereby what you talk about in terms of Alzheimer's disease or other specific diseases is no longer perfectly aligned with dementia. And I think this is a really important thing that often when we talk about, when people talk about Alzheimer's disease, they regard it as being one and the same with dementia. And often in a research space now, this is, this is not this is not yeah that that's not the case that you're you can talk about a disease process that started twenty years beforehand still as part of an Alzheimer's disease process but it's not dementia and I think this is part of that discussion about about stigma that James is mentioning and I think the other the other thing is about being um I suppose having kind of our, our eyes our eyes open about the uh, possibilities of behaviour change because one thing that we know kind of fairly well from public health research is that giving people information on its own doesn't help, doesn't lead to behaviour change. And so it's about putting into place systems that allow people and that support people to change behaviour where that's appropriate. And also recognising that if you look at those preventative factors, many of them are things like air pollution or early life education, which are actually structural factors or they're to do with kind of questions of health equity. And that it is not all about individuals making change, but it's about policy change and about health system change as well.
2: Just to follow that up, Richard, I mean, in addition to the ones that you just mentioned, the other additional risk factors are things like depression and social isolation and cognitive inactivity. So we have to make sure that people keep their minds active and that they don't end up socially isolated to uh, ensure that they um, you know, have better health into the future and less risk of dementia.
1: So, we're still talking about diagnosis, yes?
0: Yeah, that's right. Barbara says early detection can help with the success of treatments, and she mentioned drugs like... Dargon ...cholinesterase inhibitors. These prevent the breakdown of acetylcholine, a neurotransmitter in the brain. This is called a symptomatic treatment because
4: it helps improve symptoms like memory loss in patients with dementia. This is just one type of drug that can be used to treat Alzheimer's.
1: What about some of the ways in which a patient might be diagnosed?
0: Well, a psychologist or neuropsychologist would probably use cognitive testing to diagnose a patient. One early sign of Alzheimer's is problems with episodic memory. This is the type of memory that records specific events in your life, including what happened, when it happened, and where it happened.
4: Contrast this with procedural memory, which is knowing how to do a certain task, like riding a bike, tying your shoes, and so on
0: things that you do over and over without having to consciously think. Procedural memory is also impaired in dementia, particularly in later stages of the disease, but early signs and symptoms tend to be associated with episodic memory issues. Barbara co-invented a test
4: for Alzheimer's which is called the CANTAB PAL, which stands for Cambridge Neuropsychological
0: Test Automated Battery, Paired Associates Learning.
1: Wow, what a name.
0: Cantab Pal can be administered over an iPad or the internet and is very good at detecting Alzheimer's even at an early stage. How it works is you have to remember and learn where things go into boxes that you see on a screen.
4: This mimics everyday situations like working out where you left your keys at home or, as Barbara said, where you parked your car in a multi-storey car park.
1: My trick for that is just wandering around the car park pressing the button on the keys until the car flashes. That or leaving a trail of breadcrumbs behind and just hoping there aren't any geese about to mess my cunning plan up.
0: Cantab Powell basically tests how well your hippocampus is functioning, as this is one of the first things to go awry in dementia. The
4: hippocampus is sort of a shrimp-shaped structure near the center of your brain. The name comes from the Greek word for seahorse, so maybe it looks a bit like a seahorse
1: too. I bet there are some pretty grumpy seahorses out there right now, having been compared to a lowly shrimp. If I were a seahorse, I'd be fuming.
4: But Richard pointed out that detecting the potential presence of the disease early may not be a uniformly good thing. For example, he mentioned a variant of the ApoE gene called ApoE4, which predisposes
0: some people developing Alzheimer's. But not all people with this variant of the gene develop Alzheimer's. And not all people with Alzheimer's have this version of the gene. So although people can get direct-to-consumer genetic tests to find out if they have the variant, Richard points out it's an open question whether this is useful information. Maybe it's just one more thing to worry about because there isn't anything you can do to definitely avoid developing the disease.
4: Now, James objected strongly to this way of thinking. He says that current estimates indicate around 40% of dementias can be prevented with what he
0: called simple practical measures, which can be implemented relatively easily. But Richard's point was whether you need to know if you're at increased risk. Maybe all of us should take these preventative measures in the same way it's recommended that everyone eat a balanced diet and exercise to prevent conditions like heart disease. Barbara helpfully shared some of the ways to reduce
4: the risk of developing Alzheimer's. These include regular physical activity, not smoking, avoiding harmful use of alcohol, eating a balanced diet, and maintaining a healthy weight, blood pressure, cholesterol, and blood sugar levels.
0: Another risk factor that people might not think about is hearing loss. Studies have found that even mild hearing loss doubled dementia risk, moderate loss tripled risk, and people with a severe hearing impairment were five times more likely to develop dementia, which highlights just how important it is to be proactive in addressing any hearing declines over time.
1: That all sounds like pretty good advice.
0: Well, yeah, that's the point. These are all things that are generally advisable one way or the other, although they're probably all easier said than done.
1: Don't I know it?
0: But people might be more likely to actually follow this advice if they know early on that they are specifically at higher risk of developing dementia. And people need support in order to
1: take action to do these things. So where does that leave us in terms of diagnosing dementia?
0: Well, there are genetic tests, but to be clear, these won't tell you if you have Alzheimer's. At best, they can tell you if you have a genetic variation, which may increase your risk.
4: Then there's Cantab Pal, which can check to see if your cognitive function is already declining.
0: And James told us you can also get blood tests which can detect abnormalities and help diagnose dementia. The important point is that determining
4: a person's risk is different from detecting the presence of the disease. Aside from the APOE4 gene variant, Barbara told us about a few other risk factors for dementia which include depression, social isolation, cognitive inactivity.
1: Sounds a lot like lockdown.
4: Yeah,
0: I'm afraid so. And we'll hear about another perhaps surprising risk factor in a moment.
2: I think one thing we haven't mentioned, which we probably should just say, is that dementia isn't just a problem of people over 65 years of age, for example. Um, Importantly, there are over 42,000 people in the UK under the age of 65 with dementia. So we, we also should bear that in mind.
3: Thank you, Bob. That's really important to point out. And often they can have a slightly different form of dementia, it can present in different ways. Um, and those young onset dementias often have a stronger genetic component, uh, which, which has repercussions throughout families, um, as well as the different impact on, on what, what sort of services and support individuals need. Uh, just going back to the, the modifiable risk factors, one that hasn't come up, but I think it's a really important one, is hearing loss. It's actually, as a as a single factor, it's the biggest single factor that has been identified as a, a modifiable, in other words, a treatable um, contributor to dementia. And I think people probably aren't aware of this. Uh, and actually, the, the ability to have some impact on the number of people with dementia some years down the line is perhaps even greater from tackling hearing loss than from tackling those familiar things like smoking and drinking. Uh, and, th- you know, we have... Uh, a lot of ways to help identify and to improve hearing loss and it's just maybe been something that people haven't associated with with dementia um, and it's about modifiable risk it's not saying if you have hearing loss that means you're going to get dementia clearly that's not the case on a you know one-to-one basis but trying to reduce the overall burden of dementia in our society um, we should be really thinking about uh, things like hearing loss uh, and, and those other societal issues that Richard mentioned of pollution and education. But hearing loss is, is one of the biggest.
4: This is something um, we've touched a little bit on in our conversation so far, but it's something I'd like to hear more about. Um, how do we find ways to stop, uh, slow down or kind of reverse dementia? What can we do to ourselves to prevent ourselves from developing dementia?
2: Well, we heard a bit about that because obviously there's things like exercise, keeping physically active, which is very good for you. And that's good for your mood as well as your cognition and and, uh, reducing your risks of cognitive decline. Not smoking, avoiding harmful use of alcohol, controlling your weight is very important, and eating a healthy diet, maintaining healthy blood pressure, cholesterol, and blood sugar levels. And as, a, as uh, we just heard, you know, watch your hearing and social isolation. And uh, obviously, some things are beyond our control, perhaps like air pollution. But uh, I, my own work uh, within the University of Cambridge more recently has been promoting good brain health uh, through stimulating um, activities, you know, cognitive activities, learning new things and evidence-based brain training is important, and in my laboratory, we've developed multiple um, brain training games, uh, some of which are available through companies called Peak and PopReach, and specifically, we developed GameShow, which was for the mild cognitive impairment group that you heard about from James, and that has been shown to improve episodic memory and uh, also functionality in daily life in these individuals with mild cognitive impairment. So I think those sorts of things are very good for us, and uh, we, they run on your mobile phone or an iPad, so it's a great way to have fun and also to st- stimulate the neural circuits in the brain that are important for episodic memory and other forms of cognition.
3: Thank you, Bob. Because I think that the more that these activities, steps we can take can be part of a normal and interesting life, the more likely it is that we will do them. Yeah, we can follow advice and follow steps if it's if it's easy and fun to do so. But exactly what one might do will depend on where you are in life. Things you would do if you're in your teens or twenties might include, you know, moderate alcohol. not exposing to yourself to, to hearing damage. When you're playing sports, play a lot of sport, but follow the rules around concussion and minimizing concussion risks and thinking about reducing risk of head injuries, whether that's in riding or rugby or whatever your sport is. You know, So there's things that you might do at that young age that's different to what you might do when you're 40, um, when it's all too easy to, to drink a bit more, exercise less, that might be different to what you do at 60, which is to perhaps feel a bit embarrassed about your hearing loss and not come forward. You know, so where you are in life will determine what are the steps that you can take to help your own risk. And also, perhaps on behalf of your you know, other members, of your family, your neighbours, your community, be fighting for those more societal issues around equity and education, equity and health access. Um, pollution these are things that we can we can fight for for our you know friends families neighbors and community more broadly uh, not just for ourselves so at any stage of life there'll be something you can be doing it doesn't have to be stopping all the fun
2: I agree with that, James, but I think that one thing we should focus more on is promoting good brain health in schools because good habits uh, could be established very early on in life and then continue right through your whole life course to uh, make sure that you have you know, good cognition and, and well-being throughout your whole life.
3: I think that's a really important point about schools. It's not just that if you change behaviours, you know, an understanding in children, they have a less risk of dementia 50 years later when, they, when they're when they getting older. Actually, those children will be, you know, they will care about their families, their grandparents and parents. They will be able to be in families reminding and educating people um, and to be aware of dementia and to take steps to avoid it. So we would see perhaps benefits really very quickly. Um, you know, children are extremely responsible and knowledgeable, we should we should harness that.
0: Richard, do you have anything to add to, the, to this part of the conversation?
5: No, I mean, I think that I think that does cover it well. I think it is about seeing this as a whole life course question, and that it's not simply about individuals, It's it's a question for society locally and nationally.
0: Yeah, it sounds a little bit like it's, um, you know, very similar to physical maintenance. You know, we should be encouraged to exercise our bodies from an early age and kids can help their parents stay fit if they want to go out and run around and, and stuff like that. But I guess it's similar for, for brain brain maintenance as well. And um, we just have, yeah, and hopefully it should be fun. Barbara was sort of talking about a game show type um, intervention that she's developed in her in her lab. Um, I hope you can't hear the train too loudly there in the background. Um, (laughs) So we've just have a couple of minutes left in the recording. Um, We did kind of skip through the the treatment section and we went straight for prevention. But if anyone has any last comments, they'd like to give um, anything they didn't get to mention that they wanted to.
3: I think it's a really exciting time. We're at a tipping point uh, in the dementia world. Um, We focused in the discussion on the much more common dementia of Alzheimer's disease. I actually think we're, we're on the cusp of getting some really transformative treatments for some rather rare dementias, um, including frontotemporal dementia and Huntington's disease. These are rare, often coming on in, in midlife and highly genetic. But for some particular biological reasons, there's been a way in to really neutralise those gene effects. These are with a variety of strategies that are in clinical trials. And I think we may see, actually, in the next very small number of years, Uh, perhaps even 2022 some really exciting results about the idea of protecting people from those you know devastating young dementias Um, so and and where there's one one dementia that's that's solved there'll be others you know in rapid succession Um, and it's uh, it's just it's a very exciting time with that I should perhaps highlight that this what we can all do and everybody listening is to remind ourselves that this needs research investment. Research delivers results. We've seen that in COVID. We've seen it in cancer. We've seen it in HIV. Uh, the, despite uh, dementia being so common, affecting one in three of us during a lifetime, per patient, it gets a tiny amount of research investment compared to the scale of the problem. And we should all be supporting uh, national, international government and research me- uh, efforts to, to invest, because it will deliver results. So I think it should be a really positive message. I'd like people to hear on on the tractability. This is a solvable problem. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think it's it's important to point out that all the uh, role that the public can play in and participating in clinical trials and uh, mobilising the government to uh, put more funding into research and novel treatments for mental health disorders and neurodegenerative diseases. So it's really important that the public be engaged. And they're the ones that have also helped to reduce the stigma associated with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. So they're incredibly important, the public, and playing a role for translation into clinical practice.
5: I know. I mean, I would, I would echo um, both James and Barbara's points about the kind of the value of research in this area and the, the progress that, that is being made, I think, um yeah, I think it's a question of, of keeping in 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 mind the goals of of what we want to do, which is to deliver a, a a health system that can reduce the illness burden for people as they as they age across society, and that's that's not about it's about recognizing that many of these diseases and these conditions are interlinked, and that people often as they age won't simply have diabetes or they might not simply have heart disease, but they'll have lots they'll have um, or dementia, but they will have combinations of these things and recognizing that we might need to engage across the system rather than working in in siloed areas. Um,
2: Can I just say one more thing Um, you mentioned earlier in the notes and maybe you don't need this, but you talked about repurposing of other drugs, which is very uh, topical area And we've done a lot of work uh, with modafinil uh, at the University of Cambridge, which is a cognitive-enhancing drug that affects dopamine, noradrenaline, and glutamate function. And our studies have shown it enhances performance on cognitive tests in healthy individuals uh, and also in individuals with neuropsychiatric disorders, such as depression, schizophrenia, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. In healthy people, modafinil has also been shown to increase task-related motivation. Modafinil is a wake-promoting agent, and it does seem to have these beneficial effects on cognition and also motivation. So it would be interesting to have uh, long-term studies, perhaps uh, a proof-of-concept study, just to look at how well modafinil might help to uh, improve cognition in um, Alzheimer's disease. Modafinil thus far does not appear to be addictive, so this could be quite beneficial.
0: Sorry if I missed this, but so you start off you start off by saying that this drug is being repurposed from some other use. What what was the other use?
2: Well, the idea would be to repurpose it for the use in Alzheimer's disease because it's a wake-promoting agent that. Uh, has been used for narcolepsy, so that's what it's uh, used for. But it's also used in America for uh, sleep disturbance due to shift work because it found that it reduced accidents in shift workers. And it does seem, in our studies, to both have alert, awake alerting potential, but more importantly, cognitive-enhancing studies, which we've done with uh, at Cambridge um both in healthy volunteers, but also, as I said, in these uh, psychiatric d- disorders. So it would be useful to just see whether it can enhance cognition and maybe motivation, task-related motivation and, and uh, Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment.
0: That's really interesting. I could see us doing a whole other episode on how the treatments for different psychiatric and cognitive disorders, like how they're different, but also have overlaps
2: in terms of the treatments and stuff. Yeah, James has done quite a lot of work on Parkinson's disease.
3: That's right. So it's one of the features that's coming out of research is, although the biology of these diseases, those junk proteins that distinguish different forms of dementia, for example. Um, that we can see under the microscope, they're very distinctive and the genes are very distinctive from one dimension to another. And yet many symptoms have so much in common. So whether it's to do with memory or motivation or mood um, uh, and and apathy. And so whether you're thinking about trying to switch off the biology of the illness to prevent the disease would take you down a certain direction. But that can be done in conjunction with treatment to think about reducing symptoms. So the The difference between symptomatic versus disease-modifying treatments is often highlighted. And there's tremendous scope to learn from things that might be effective in one disease to bring them across and test them in another disease uh, and to accelerate that process of of, of effective treatments. The UK is very well-placed for this. Um, I think for various reasons, it's it's got a very strong culture. and um, The the work of the NHS means it's very um, well set up to try and understand around long-term risks, but also around the, the consequences of symptoms uh, for people with dementias. And to, the, the, to, you know, to, to switch off symptoms like dopamine and Parkinson's disease, it's although we still don't have, after 50 years, uh, a drug that can stop the illness in its tracks, actually we've had 50 years of a really effective symptomatic treatment that's, that's transformed the lives of those with the illness. Um, so I think there's, there should be no shame in focusing on symptoms as well as trying to, or hand in hand with switching off the, the the illness fundamentally. But I don't know whether Richard that has different concerns from a societal perspective. These are quite different implications.
5: But I think it's that key thing in terms of as we think about developing new therapies that they are things that make a difference to patients' lives and to the fact to their families' lives, and that it's that that's kind of the ultimate goal rather than necessarily making a change to the biology it's about the outcome and the, the impact in long.
2: well I think I think the important thing to follow up on what Richard said is that if we can you know improve the symptoms and improve people's ability to uh, function in daily life and have better cognition and well-being that's a really important uh, aim that we should uh, strive for
3: if I could just my last 30 seconds would be if you're worried about your memory or someone you live with, your husband, wife, parent, grandparent, please come forward. Please talk about it. Come to your GP, come to a brain health centre or memory clinic. Um, just come forward, talk about it, assess, and that there may be all sorts of reasons uh, and treatments available and, and understanding for you. So, so don't hold back.
2: Yes, I would agree. Early detection is so important.
1: So another risk factor for dementia is hearing loss. Haven't heard of that one before.
0: Me neither, but hearing loss is thankfully very treatable. And again, just because you have hearing loss doesn't mean you'll develop dementia, but it does increase your risk.
1: So is there anything we can do to avoid developing dementia?
0: Well, as we
4: heard before, lots of the same things that are good for your body turn out to be good for your mind too. So they may help decrease your risk of developing dementia, things like physical activity.
0: And Barbara said that cognitive stimulation, basically brain training, can also help. Her lab has developed several computer games that are widely available online. One of them is called Game Show, which is helpful for improving episodic memory. It helps improve people's daily lives, and it's fun too.
1: Who could ask for more?
0: James said that preventative measures can change throughout your lifetime depending
4: on your age and interests. Barbara suggested that good habits can be promoted in schools,
0: standing students in good stead later on.
1: Okay, so that's prevention, but what about cure?
0: Well, sadly, it's more treatment than cure. Research is essential to producing better treatments, but James said that dementia gets only a very small amount of research funding compared to other health conditions. And that's despite the large proportion of society affected by it.
4: Barbara said that everyone can play a role in helping to develop more treatments for dementia, from participating in clinical trials to helping destigmatize the disease.
0: James said that more treatments for other types of dementia are on their way soon, so stay tuned for more on that. Richard emphasized the need to treat patients holistically, something we'll hear more about in the
4: Cancer and AI episode this season, as well as the mental health episode.
0: Barbara mentioned that another tactic for treating dementia is repurposing existing drugs, which are normally used to treat other conditions. She told us that Cambridge researchers have been working with a drug called modafinil, which was originally developed to treat narcolepsy and the tiredness which people who do shift work can experience. This drug affects a few different neurotransmitters in the brain. Neurotransmitters are the chemical signals which neurons use to communicate with each other. And researchers have found that modafinil helps both healthy people and people with psychiatric disorders, including depression, schizophrenia and ADHD, to perform better on cognitive tests. Based on these early findings, Barbara suggested that more research should be done
4: to see if modafinil could help treat cognitive decline in patients with dementia.
1: We should stress at this point that modafinil should only be used as part of research.
0: James emphasised that the symptoms of different dementias can be similar, but the biological causes can be different. Depending on whether you target the cause of the disease or the symptoms, your approach to treatment may be different. But this fact could also point researchers towards drugs that may work for multiple different
4: diseases.
0: We heard throughout the conversation about the importance of early detection. So
4: the last point we want to leave you with is that if you have any concern about yourself, a loved one, a friend or someone you live with, talk to your GP and get assessed.
0: One final, final thing, if you want to take part and support dementia research, whether you're healthy or have dementia, the single port of call to be put in touch with researchers is the Join Dementia Research website, run by the NIHR. Well, that's it for this episode. Stay tuned for our next episode on infectious diseases.
1: Before then, please spread
0: the mind of our chatter word.
1: Who do you know whose life is simply incomplete without our voices in their ears? And please fill out our survey
0: to tell us what you think of the podcast. You can find the link to the survey in the episode description. We want it all. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, and please make sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. We like reviews.
4: Hopefully a good one, not a bad
0: or an ugly one. A huge thanks once again to our guests, Richard Milne, James Rowe, and Barbara Sahakian.
1: And finally, a big thank you to the sickeningly talented Carlo Ladd for our music and the equally talented Alex Sadler for our artwork. See See you next next time. time.